Welcome to Sports Weekly with Ayaz Memon. Hello and welcome to another edition of Sports Weekly. I'm your host Ayaz Memon and let me first spell out what is the menu I've got for today. It's it's really a packed program. We've got obviously results and opinions on the French Open where Novak Djokovic won his 19th Grand Slam title, the only player in the Open era to win all the slams twice. Now this is going to be a big big year for him as we know and we're going to discuss what holds ahead for Novak in the Olympics at Wimbledon and also the US Open. We've also got a new French Open champion in the women's section. It's Barbara Plechikova from Czechoslovakia. Not only did she win the women's singles title, but she also won the women's doubles title. So she's made some headway and remember she was an unseeded player in the tournament. Then there is obviously the test match between England and New Zealand which New Zealand won handsomely, emphatically. And therefore it's not just about what they did to England, it also means or what what we'll examine is what holds in store for India because remember the big cricket match of the season this English summer is the World Test Championship between India and England. We've also got an update on Christian Eriksen, the guy who came back from the dead on the football field. Well, you know, the good news is, of course, that it wasn't as serious as one thought or what it first looked from the visuals, what one saw on television. But it's a serious enough issue for health officials, football officials, sports scientists to consider. We've also got roundup from the West Indies where... South Africa are touring for a cricket series and then of course there's the Formula 1 triple header coming up in France and two in Austria for which we've got uh, Swami Larora and also I've got with me as always Mr Fantastic so welcome both of you guys come on hop on Hey Ayaz thanks so much for having me on the show pleasure to be here as always Hey Ayaz ah oh. This is going to be so much fun isn't it this time out there's just such an abundance of topics to speak about from a variety of sports I can say as always but this time I think something feels just a little bit more special well it is actually i mean look at what you know when you look at the itinerary which i or all the, the, hmm. the list of events that i've i've kind of spelled out there's just so much diversity there's so much drama True. there's so much excellence that we're going to talk about so i'm really excited come on mr fantastic are you going to lead on absolutely will and i definitely want to lead on with who i think is probably now the greatest tennis player alive Novak Djokovic and yes there are a lot that would kind of chase me down for saying that and I'll admit I wasn't a big fan of Novak until recently but look having seen his achievements the way he's playing and especially after he came back from two sets down to win the title is quite yeah. something do you agree he's the greatest and most likely to kind of go way beyond the tally of 20 that uh, Fedal currently hold <laughs> well i think you know you're risking your life uh, you know there's a whole universe of federal supporters and there's a whole universe of nadal supporters who won't like what you're saying but i think you can't ignore certain stats i mean he's one grand slam behind nadal and federer but the manner in which he is going about you know garnering these titles adding them to his kitty and the point i want to make is we've seen in this tournament which just completed twice he came back from two sets down to win then he had that marathon match against nadal who, who owns the french open center court and let's not forget what dokovic has done he's won the slam twice all the slam titles but he has beaten federer in his prime on grass he's beaten nadal in his prime on clay and that's something which it just boggles your mind what all he can do and remember he's in line for a 
what they call a golden slam. This is the Olympic year. If he wins the Wimbledon and the US Open and the Olympic title, there's only one person who's done it earlier, and that is Steffi Graf in 1988, if I remember correctly. Uh, I saw her winning the Olympic medal. I didn't see the other Grand Slam events. But she's the only tennis player to have won the Golden Slam. And Djokovic, now, uh, he in fact hinted, you know, he says, this could be a special year for me. He's looking ahead to Wimbledon. Now, obviously, this has been a very draining tournament. Wimbledon is going to be tough. There's not much time separating the Olympics and Wimbledon. And then, of course, immediately after that, the US Open comes. So, it's going to be a lot of stress and strain on Dokovic. But hey, if you're on sight of a Golden Slam, why would you want to bother about the stress and strain? You just want to go out there and play and try and win. Absolutely. But uh, speaking of the final, I think Stefano Tsitsipas also set himself up as a future great. I mean, there's a lot of talk about the next generation. And on this show itself, we've spoken about it multiple times. I'll admit I was very disappointed when he wasn't able to complete the third set yesterday and just close out the match. But he's shown he has a big heart. He has great capability, very even temperament, despite how he might come across at times on the court. What do you think? Is he the next big challenger to the tag of a big player? Well, I liked his look on court and he started off very well. I think he got outwitted apart from being outplayed by Dokovic later. But, you know, I mean, if you heard the press conference, Dokovic said later that he, he anticipated that uh, Pass will come strongly at him in the first two sets. So what he did is he let him spend his energy. I think tactically, it was a master move. And you saw that I think the big mistake that uh, the challenger made was to come out there on the court and, and uh, show off his illness or his problem or his injury or his strain. Because then when you give Dokovic an opportunity like that to take psychological hold of the match, he's not going to let you go. That's where the match turned. In fact, there was one point, I remember it lasted for about one game, 11 minutes or 12 minutes. And uh, the way he wore him down, I think that to me was the turning point of the match. And you asked me if, he's, if the future belongs to... Sitsipas. You know, I wish so. He, he looked very boggish, if, if you know what I mean, on court with that long hair of his. And, uh, you know, Bog was also a great clay court champion, as we know, apart from being a Wimbledon champion. The point I'm trying to make is, if you look at Bog, if you look at even a guy like McEnroe, if you look, look at a guy like Boris Becker, Federer, Nadal, all these guys, by the time they were 22, they were Grand Slam winners. So, it's going to be a challenge for uh, Sitsipas to winning the odd Grand Slam title, yes. But to become a continuing champion or a continuous winner of Grand Slam titles, that's going to be the crucial test for him, I think. What we've had is, you know, it happened with Novak. There was a time when he would not win, then he would get frustrated and let off his frustration in press conferences, which has actually earned him so much ill will. You know, he was like a, he was throwing tantrums everywhere and then... When he won his first title, and from there, there's been no looking back. I mean, at one point in time, the world was divided between Federer and Nadal. It's no longer a bipolar world. There are three angles to this triangle, and Djokovic perhaps is in the forefront now of, of these guys because he's two, three years younger. And let's face it, even Nadal looks like he perhaps is maybe slowing down just a wee bit. Federer, we know, is pushing 40 and he's really on the wrong side of the age of playing tennis. But Djokovic is looking as if he is still 27, 28. The way he's moving on court, the speed, the hunger to win, the strokes that he comes up with, the bravado, the resilience, the sheer ambition. I think that's a lesson if Tsitsipas has taken from this match, then I think he could be a far better player, you know, going ahead. 
Well said, but uh, I think Novak's kind of paved the way for winning Grand Slams after 30. He's won at least, what, seven of those. So I think Sitsipas probably does have some time. Moving on to the women's draw, you had a fully star-studded draw at the start of the tournament. And then we all know what happened with uh, Naomi Osaka and Ash Barty going out with injury. Serena Williams getting knocked out, which kind of made it a very open draw. For the longest time, it seemed like Iga Swiatek would defend her title until she got knocked out by Pavlyuchenkova in the semis. And as things turned out, now we have a new champion, an unseeded one at that, and someone who went on to win the doubles title as well. Is this a sign of greater depth in women's tennis, you think? Well, it would suggest that. You know, I mean, when you have six champions over six years, yes, there are pullouts, there are some injuries, some people play, don't play, somebody's not available because of motherhood or whatever might be the reason. But if you've got six different champions coming up over six years, then it shows that there is a certain richness of young talent or at least talent which is coming through in the women's section, which is not the case as we know uh, in the men's section. I mean, 59 titles between Federer, Nadal and Djokovic. And, you know, when the others, you don't even need your fingers to count. It's as few as that. So, obviously, something is happening there. But the other thing is, of course, then you can talk of consistency. That uh, every time when you have a new champion, then what's happening to the, the person who had won the earlier year? Why isn't she good enough to come and repeat the performance? The question to ask is, are these champions also fading out as rapidly as they are coming? It could end up becoming a bit of a conundrum. I know, yes, Naomi Osaka wasn't there, Bharti was not there. So, it's a bit of a vexing question at this point in time. What you want is obviously a lot of talent vying for the top spot. But you also don't want so much inconsistency that from a fan's point of view, you don't know, hey, who the hell do I follow now? You know, I mean, ultimately, all sports run also on, on fandom. And uh, the reason why men's tennis is super big is because what these three guys have done. I mean, when you added Andy Murray a few years back, these four were mega draws. You know, they just took the game to a level in terms of appeal, which from the days maybe of McEnroe, Bog and Connors, we hadn't seen. Or when you go back to the 60s, when there was Lever, Emerson and Rosewall and, you know, all these guys playing. So, I think that you need a lot of young talent coming in and that's the fresh talent is always exciting to watch and there's more competition. But also, I think somewhere, you don't want these girls to come in and then suddenly, for some reason, they vanish or they lose their consistency and you ask, you start wondering, hey, what the hell is going on? Yeah. So, before we sign off with the tennis, here's an interesting stat. Federer plus Nadal plus Djokovic is 59 Grand Slams. Hold your breath. Agassi plus Becker plus Edberg plus Chang plus Noah plus Cash plus Korea plus Tish plus Musta plus Kafelnikov, Kuertin, Rafter, Safin, Mari, Wawrinka, Ferrero, Rodic, Del Potro, Ivanisevic, Bruguera, Villas and Ash is 58 slams. <laughs> <laughs> That's the greatness of Crazy. this. <laughs> Crazy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Awesome. I mean, what an era. What an era. Mr. Fantastic and Somil. What an era we are living through. Imagine, I mean, these guys have won 59 titles. You open the newspapers in the morning and if there's any tennis semi-final or final and you don't find the name of Federer, Nadal or Dokovic there, you wonder whether you're on another planet, <laughs> you know? So Absolutely. <laughs> well, moving on from the tennis over to the cricket and New Zealand look unstoppable, don't they? I mean, these are ominous signs for India with the World Test Championship final starting in just about four days' time. Are they stoppable? What can India do? Should we be worried? Should we just give it up? <laughs> I think we should certainly be worried. I think we should be worried because New Zealand, I think they've won seven out of the last eight matches uh, that they played. And uh, two of these include matches against India. 
played in New Zealand. So, uh, you know, there's a bit of a psychological hold that they would believe they have over the Indian team. And then you look at their run-in form. You know, Williamson has not made runs in the first test match, didn't play the second match. Tim Saudi didn't play. I mean, a lot of argument was made that England were without Stokes and without Josh Butler, Jofra Archer. But, you know, they were without Tim Saudi and Williamson and Watling. So, I think what New Zealand have shown is that, like India showed on the, on the Tour of Australia, that their bench strength is as good as their main players. And that's a worrying thought for India. In fact, now, New Zealand are in a bit of a quandary, much as India were in Australia or, or against England or even now. Who do you choose from your fast bowling squad? Do they keep out Matt Henry? Do they keep out Trent Bolt? What do they do? I mean, Tim Saudi, or do they keep out Neil Wagner? Do they play only an all-pace attack? That's not a, such a sensible thing to do, as England realised. Both matches they played without a spinner and they came to grief. So, I think that, you know, it's a very challenging situation which has emerged for India. And it looked to me at the start of this series between England and New Zealand, that New Zealand's batting is their their vulnerability, their weak spot. But without Williamson, Devin Conway has been a fine. He's been making big scores. Ross Taylor has come into form. Tom Latham has done well. Henry Nichols has done well. And they've got these all-rounders who can also bat well. So it's a very strong batting lineup too. And if the conditions become very English, so to speak, and not it's not an Indian summer, that means it's overcast and the ball is swinging and you know the, or the pitch is a little soft and a little damp and it's seeming, then I think that certainly New Zealand will have an advantage. And don't forget the most important of all. They've had two matches, two competitive matches to prepare for the World Test Championship final. I mean, you can't have a better preparation for the WTC final than playing two test matches as lead-in. While India have been, you know, giving catch practice to each other or bowling in the nets, or, you know, discussing with each other how bad being in the biosecure bubble it is, etc., etc. So, there's a lot of catching up to do by the Indian team. And finally, I think what will also pinch Virat Kohli and guys is that they've lost their number one test ranking. The ICC ranking now says New Zealand is the number one team. You win that WTC final, you might get your test ranking also back. So, it's more of a grudge match for India to try and knock New Zealand off their perch. Prove detractors wrong that... We can acclimatize in just about 12 days' time, play a very, very important one-off test series, which is really what this is going to be, and compete against one of the most settled and menacing test teams around the world. Sounds like an easy tour. (laughs) (laughs) I think that India, you know, in my opinion, has been the most consistent cricket team over the last four or five years across formats. When you look at test cricket or one-day cricket or T20 cricket, India has been the most consistent. They've not had many ups and downs. It's not gone like a ECG graph, the results. But New Zealand have been the most improved. Over the last three years, they reached the final of the World Cup. They are in the final of the WTC you know, World Test Championship. They, I think they're number three in the T20 rankings. So, this is a fantastic team that Kane Williamson has put together. And I think it's happened because there's a lot of commitment and ambition riding their efforts. I was just reading a report in the Daily Telegraph. So, the annual turnover of New Zealand cricket is less than of that of some of the counties in England. It's $35 million or something like that. You know, India would be like 15, 20, 50 times more. So, money also plays a part. The talent pool for New Zealand is the smallest amongst the major countries. I'm not talking of Zimbabwe or uh, Sri Lanka or some of the Caribbean countries seen independently. But the talent pool in New Zealand compared to India, Australia, Pakistan, 
England, even Bangladesh is the smallest. And they have, like we've been saying in the past programs that India can put up two teams to play international cricket. So too can New Zealand now. That's how good they are. Yeah. So moving on, let's assume that the pitch is going to be fast and bouncy. Who would you pick to be your four or five bowlers? <laughs> so one. I'll talk about India. I think Kohli and Shasti will be scratching their heads over selecting, I think, the bowling complement. The batting, I think, selects itself. There's Rohit. Even there, there's a bit of an issue. Should it be Shubman Gill or Mayank Agarwal? Because Shubman Gill hasn't had too many you know, good knocks in the recent past. But I would still go with him. And then there's Pujara, Kohli, Rahane and Pant. So the batting sorts itself out. The issue is, in English conditions, do you play two spinners or one? If it's only one spinner, who do you play? Do you play Ashwin, who's in the prime of his, you know, in the best form that we've seen him in several years? Or do you play Jadeja, who's also a very good bowler? He's got 200 plus wickets. He's also a very good batsman, an equally good batsman. He's got a, actually a better average than Ashwin. And he's a brilliant fielder. And then that that I think is going to be the decider, isn't it? Just for that fielding, you'd probably pick Jadeja. But I I would go with both spinners because that's your strength against New Zealand batsmen. If you play all your fast bowlers, which is what they are also used to playing at nets, playing in matches against England that they played. But even if you have to choose three fast bowlers from India, who do you choose? Should it be Bumrah? I think so certainly. Should it be Ishan Sharma? I would say yes. Because also he's got county experience. He's got rich experience in international cricket. And then should it be Shami who's coming back from injury? Or should it be Mohammad Siraj who's actually had a fantastic 4-5 months? So I think the decider here is going to be, I think Shasi doesn't have too much hair to pull out. But Kohli certainly has. So I think they'll plump for experience. Because this is a really big match. It's an ICC trophy. And remember, Kohli doesn't have an ICC trophy for to show for all the Great things he's achieved, achieved on the cricket field. So, I think it's going to be Ashwin and Jadeja. And it'll be Bumrah, Ishant and Shami. Yeah, that sounds like a strong bowling attack on paper. And I'm going to ask you to pick a winner. What What do you expect the result to be when we're talking next week? What are we going to be discussing? That how India is the world champion now? Or how they fell short? Mr. Fantastic, Mark Hillog. <laughs> you want me to pick a winner right now? <laughs> yes. You know, you know... <laughs> Let's let's wait and see. A lot of things. There's many a slip between the cup and the lip. You know, a lot will depend, in my opinion, on how fit Kane Williamson is as player and as captain. He's held himself out of the second test match against England, not wanting to aggravate his elbow injury. If for some reason it gets aggravated while net practice or, you know, he takes a tumble on the staircase or whatever else, then I think the you know the whole equation changes for me. I know that Tom Latham helped his team win the match against England. But I think Williamson is the key figure for his team against India. I also think that where India are concerned, a lot will depend on... We have no idea what the rhythm of a bowler like Jasprit Bumrah is. Because I think he'll be so crucial in this match. Ishant, I mentioned about his experience in county cricket and vast experience at, at the international level. But for me, the key bowlers of the Pacers will be Bumrah and Shami. Bumrah did come back after injury and played the ODIs and you know some matches against England. But Shami has been untested since breaking or fracturing his hand in Australia. From what I gather, and I spoke to uh, Ravi Shastri a, a few days back when he was in Southampton, and he said, Shami is looking sharp. Shastri can be very curt or he can be very bombastic. He said, don't worry, Shami is looking very sharp. So I'm assuming that Shami is pretty much a front runner to be in the team. And that's why I chose him ahead of Siraj. Got it. Awesome. 
so moving on to other sports uh, while we continue to pray and hope that the indian team can make it happen and bring home the trophy uh, the euros are underway and we discussed at length about all of that but irrespective of any of the matches and the results the big moment happened when christian eriksen collapsed on the pitch in denmark's match against finland and it has been reported since that he had a cardiac arrest and is now fine but this is one of those bizarre incidents that happen in some sports we've had a few reports of footballers actually suffering this in the past as well there's a lot of discussion about whether it's too much of a packed footballing calendar players are jumping from one league to another tournament and then suddenly you've got an international football year as well these are some of the fittest athletes on the planet by the way and if they can suffer under the stress of constant pressure of performance uh, well what hope is there for the rest of us we just hope that eriksen is fine he recovers and we're able to see him play again for inter milan and hopefully for denmark unlikely to happen this tournament but still what do you think about this somil how do you think this situation was handled i think from the perspective of the team it was just perfect they did the right thing the danish national team all the players surrounding eriksen making sure that nobody could see what was going on and then of course simon shea going out there and helping christian eriksen i mean one wonders what could have happened if simon wasn't there and if the referee hadn't stopped the game within 5 seconds it's amazing the way they responded so quickly that was spot on that's the kind of stuff that you really love to see in the world of sport everyone coming together and a word of a word of appreciation for the fans as well because all of them were absolutely, chanting absolutely absolutely yeah all of them were chanting christian eriksen's name even the finnish fans so the finnish fans said christian the danish fans said eriksen and that was so heartwarming to see and what makes it only better is that eriksen was all right eventually and many have been circulating rumors about whether he will play anymore or not i don't think that even matters at this stage i think he should be fine of course for this very tournament it seems unlikely but the good thing is the more important thing right now is that he is okay and his family is all mentally quite fine as well that's a good thing to see But one area where I'm actually slightly conflicted is the TV directing side of things. Now, I know from personal experience that TV directing is just the hardest part of any broadcast, right? But commentators, I mean we still have it slightly easier than the one who has to manage at least 9, 10, 11 different camera feeds and then choose what goes out on TV. And you can't even blame the cameraman for showing what he showed because it's their job to cover what's happening on the field. But I think they could have taken a leaf out of the World of Motorsports book where whenever there's something serious happening, you peel away you don't show any replays you don't focus your camera on that too much a case in point would be antoine hubert's fatal accident back in 2019 in the formula 2 race not one replay of that crash happened because they realized instantly okay this is too serious we should not focus our attention right here they showed shots of the paddock they showed shots of the cars they showed shots of anything else apart from what was happening at that very site and i think that's one thing that they missed doing so at the euros in that denmark finland game not saying that you should completely point your fingers at the tv director to say that they're evil but i think this could have been handled slightly better from the perspective of the doctors the team members the teammates and everyone in the stadium as well that was spot on all right well it's a tough one you know given that it's something happening in real time you're beaming mm. this across the globe plus it's really a black swan event uh, so it you're is. you're not always prepared how to handle it and i I'd, i'd actually give him the benefit of the doubt because there is this whole conversation you know do you uh, deflect what's more important i mean do do the fans and do the viewers have a right to know what's happening when should they know and how much there's no right answer there i think and perhaps the best way to leave it is to say that whatever happened was pretty well handled given circumstances mm. 
uh around the sporting world yet another incident with faf duplessis having a concussion after a collision during his pakistan super league match and thankfully he's fine as well but what's going on around the world of sport i wonder ayaz yeah i mean look it's a, it's a very tough one to call out you know i mean it's a damned if you do and damned if you don't kind of a situation from a media point of view because uh, obviously as tom mentioned you don't when something horrific like that happens are you better off not showing that even for the fans or from a media point of view are you really depriving people of seeing what has actually happened if i am in charge of the camera crew or if i am the director of the of the shoot i am walking a plank i don't know what would be right or what would be wrong so in that sense i would say that they did the best possible in that situation you know because somewhere you need a call taken like within 4 or 5 seconds this is an extraordinary development it's not like 50 such cases have happened earlier so therefore you are prepared for it it's not so common place that Yeah. you have kind of almost got a protocol what to do in such a situation so i think they did it to the best possible or the director and the, the 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 broadcasters and the camera crew did the best they could that's great well let's wish all the players the very best and while the euros are still in their early days we've had some great results uh, some really good matches going on so be sure to catch that moving on to or rather staying with south africa Uh, they're touring the West Indies and they hammered the West Indies by an innings in 63 runs. This is the same West Indies team that recently performed admirably around the world. So is this just a question of inconsistency, Ayaz? Actually, it was quite a disastrous performance by the West Indies. I mean, they promised a lot when they went to Bangladesh and beat Bangladesh in Bangladesh, as we know. But this was a pretty shallow performance by the Caribbean players in their own den, so to speak, South Africa, without Faf Duplessis. In Faf Duplessis, I must mention here, was in Pakistan playing Pakistan Super League, and he got involved in a kind of a clash with a fellow player on the field and had to be carried off the stretcher. And what I understand is that he had a bit of a memory loss. He's fine. he's not uh, struggling for health now but the accident with a fellow player was quite serious as one understand but to get back to the match quinton decock made a century i mean batting first west indies bowled out for 97 that's really the start of the rot ngd picking up wickets norshay who's been so impressive in the indian premier league picking up wickets and then in the second innings it was kagizo rabada their mainstay or their spearhead who picked up wickets so not much batting performance to show from the west indies and that really you know explains itself by the loss by an innings south africa we got another match to play i think looking to the world test championship point system is all over we are going to have the final now so the next cycle will start later but i think south africa looking strongly to rebuild now that it is clear that ab de villiers is going to retire come what may faf duplessis is not interested in the in test cricket so there's a whole new bunch of players that they're looking at to come good under captain dean elger that's really the challenge for them west indies also have a new captain craig bryswit didn't have a good match neither did kyle myers who had made a double hundred in bangladesh so lots of questions will arise about west indies performance in the west indies barring one or two young players uh, who did well well that's very interesting anyways thanks for that ayaz Moving on to Formula 1. We've got three races over three weekends, one in France and two in Austria, and this is a season that's really really heating up. Well, Samuel, we need your predictions and we need your inputs into what's going to really happen over the next three weekends. <laughs> I wish I could tell. That's the one thing I've been saying constantly, and I love that I don't have an answer for this one because the season has been so interesting. But finally, we can see some 
chinks in the Mercedes armor, right? Well, are piercing through it. But this one will be interesting in France. Now, normally, France is known to be a circuit that produces, let's say, a bit more drab races. But I think this one is going to be different. Considering the context of the season, I think the intensity levels will really be up. And normally you'd expect this to be a Mercedes track, but with Red Bull, you really can't tell. They're making big strides on Mercedes every other race weekend. So you never know which way this one is going to go. But I think the pressure really is on Lewis Hamilton this time out. I mean, after the error he made last time out in Baku, he is under the spotlight. And we've been building it up, right? We've been saying this sort of thing that, okay, Hamilton is a seven-time world champion. He will recover. Hamilton is the greatest ever. He will recover. Now is the chance to actually go out there and prove it. Now, he's not one person who takes pressure too easily, but this is going to be a real challenge considering the way Red Bull are performing. Not just one car, it's two of them this time out, with Perez also doing a good work. Well, that's one thing. Um, how do you think now the Drivers and Constructors Championships would end up looking after these three weeks? Do you think mm. there'll be a big change? Do you think Hamilton's lost his mojo a little bit? I... Wouldn't say so, because Monaco was more of a car-based thing rather than a driver-based one. And with Baku, it was just a rare mistake, right? Not switching on the right switch, basically, for the brake bias. That ended up costing him that sort of win right there. So I think it's just a minor blip. So ideally, he'll be fine. But as I mentioned, it's about going out there and backing up all the expectations that we have made for him. Not that he needs to prove anything to us. It's just that he has to answer himself. That's going to be the more important thing. And I, I think he'll do just about fine. What I'm really keen to see is Austria. Because Austria, every single year, ends up producing what was similar to the Roland Garros final that we saw a day ago. Just pandemonium all the time. And having a double header there actually makes it quite interesting because even last year we had two races there. Both of them ended up producing a completely different element of drama to each other. So though that's a circuit that I like quite a lot. So the next three weeks, intense for sure, because there's going to be no break for them at all. And the traveling from France to Austria as well, that's one thing, adjusting to a new circuit. But the fact that they're there at the Red Bull Ring for two weeks should make things slightly easier. But on the competitive side of things, mm, no doubt this is going to be a clutch part of the race weekend and the entire championship because this is where we enter the mid part properly, right? Normally, some teams and drivers may slack off. They may end up losing just a little bit of performance. You can't afford to do that when everyone is just so close to each other, even in the midfield where McLaren and Ferrari are dueling quite well. And there's two races in Austria, yep. but completely different tracks. Yeah, so Paul Ricard is more of the technical circuits. You've got these slow corners mixed in with the fast ones. You've got a long straight. And yes, it's got acres of runoff. It's basically a parking lot with a few colours out there and a and, and small piece of road. This is one image, by the way, you should check out of the chicane at the middle of the straight. You literally cannot tell which one of those layouts they're going to use. I think Paul Ricard has over 100 different layouts that you can use in Formula 1. They've just chosen one of them that works most conveniently with them. But it has a reputation for producing bad racing. I hope that changes. But again, Austria is completely different. Austria does not have any technical corners. Austria does not have any section like the S's or any major chicane like that. Simple, straight uphill right-hander, straight downhill right-hander, stuff like that. It's a classic engine-dominated circuit where you need to do a lot on the draft, on the slipstream. And it's more of a race that you win with the mind rather than just completely the capability of your car. So that is going to be a very interesting challenge, even more so when we do it two weeks in a row. And well, my final question for the day will be, mm. 
are Ferrari really on their way back? They've had two <laughs> decently consistent performances. Yep. They're nowhere to, uh, near being their best uh, maybe from four or five years ago. But are they coming back? Is, is this starting to become a three-way title race? No, I, I wouldn't say so. It was quite clear in Baku that Charles Leclerc's pole position was, let's say, more of a one-off because of all the amazing draft that he got from Lewis Hamilton. As you can see from the race pace, it just wasn't there to compete at all. Same a uh, couple of weeks back ago in Spain as well, Charles Leclerc was able to get the jump on Valtteri Bottas at the start, but couldn't quite keep him behind. And Bottas didn't have to do anything, just had to follow his old strategy. And he went up, up ahead with a major gap. Because that Ferrari, it may be able to defend on track, but at a circuit like Baku, it wasn't able to do that as well. So it really needs track position, which is not going to be very beneficial in Austria, right? Which is a very wide circuit. At Paul Ricard, still there may be a chance if they qualify quite well. But no, I don't think they're championship contenders. A few circuits, they might pop up. They might give you a good challenge. But I think they're mostly in consistent race pace, right up there with the McLaren. But that's a very compelling battle, Mr. Fantastic, because after, I think, what is, how many years has it been? Almost a decade now, Ferrari and McLaren are competing against each other head-to-head for direct positions. And if you remember all the crazy history they've been to, this has actually added just an extra layer of context into it. Well, what's your prediction? And I need a name for the winner. <laughs> I'm going Max Verstappen. No, no way he gets beaten for France. For Austria... For Austria, I think, I think Hamilton bounces back. But that, again, you can't tell, wow. right? That the Honda engine has been so good at Austria as well over the last couple of years. It's that sort of a conundrum. You can feel the excitement in my voice as I say this because I genuinely am pumped up to see. It's going to be hard work for everyone, the teams, drivers, crew members, us in the media side. But is it going to be fun to follow? Oh, yes. Well, looking forward to that. Well, pleasure as always to be on the show, Ayaz. Thanks so much and look forward to discussing next week. Uh, let's hope it's all good news from an Indian cricket fan's point of view. Thank you. Should be a lot of fun to see you next week, guys. So many fun topics to speak about. The cricket, of course, but the Euros are also coming up. Some major fixtures are there this week. I'm going to have a good time discussing things next week with all of you, Mr. Fantastic and Ayaz. Should be fun. Thanks a lot for that, uh, Mr. Fantastic. And Samil, uh, it's always a pleasure to have both of you all guys on the show. And you know how much I've learned or I keep learning about uh, motor racing, F1, of course, football and tennis from you guys. It's it's really a pleasure. It's a delight. There's something to be had, take home every day for me. We'll catch up again next week. We've got, as we discussed in this show, the World Test Championship coming up. That's the big story coming up next week. And then, of course, we look at the build-up to the Olympics, what's happening on that front. Plus, loads of action, as we know, in the Euro Cup, in football, in motor racing and in tennis. All of that will feature in Sports Weekly next week with Ayaz Meeman. 